0: Put the kettle on, get the good biscuits out because it's time for your final dose of Bowser Museum's Natas. I'm your host, Michael, and thank you for joining us in this first series of the podcast where we have been looking back at 10 years of experience Barnsley Bowser Museum. This is the last episode for now, but we will we'll be back just before Christmas with a pub quiz. But before then, I thought I'd treat you to to a selection of interviews from the Bounsley Archives Sound Archive that's been recorded over the last few years. We begin with an interview with Mel Dyke, who sadly passed away earlier this year. In 2019, our community heritage creator, Stephen Skelly, recorded an interview with Mel. Here's a short piece from that interview.
1: I went to St Mary's Infant School and St Mary's Girls School as my primary education. Um, and I became aware then that whilst there were several girls in my class whose fathers worked down the pit like mine, there were also, there was, for, the school dentist's daughter was in my class. And um, the daughter of a lady who owned a very posh dress shop in the arcade was in my class. So we had a very mixed society within my group the class I was in for those junior years and then the same when I I got a scholarship we couldn't have paid for me to go to the girls high school as you had to do in those days there were a few scholarships and I was lucky and got one of them so got into a better education and I stayed on for a year after I could have left which my parents thought was very grand um, to take my GCSE as it was in those days, General Certificate of Secondary Education and that was the highest thing I ever got I I left at 16 and got a job Um, I married in my late, just before I was 20 um, and started a family, as you did in those days, almost immediately, Um, and so did bits of office work for people or books for people, that kind of thing, um, to earn a bit, Um, but didn't go out to work until my children went to school full-time and then realised that maybe I'd missed out on something. And at that moment, a man called Alec Clegg later Sir Alec Clegg, had decided that there were lots of people like me in the West Riding, as it was then. Bounsley, of course, we were in the borough, but West Riding girls were in our schools and I knew many of them were my friends because they lived in Gorba or further out. Yeah, yeah. Um, So that notion of spreading... Um, geographically um, became much easier and Clegg said, it put an article in the Chronicle, I'm nearly sure it said, did we miss you first time round? Should you have been a teacher but weren't? And I actually thought then, because I loved reading to the children, I loved watching them learn and and moving from stage to stage and I was unintentionally observing that and really getting a kick out of it with with both my children and um, so I applied um, to Swinton Day Training College. It was a school in Swinton that they turned into a 9 till 4.30 training college so people locally could go, especially women, and if they'd a mother or mother-in-law or a good friend living nearby, get their children to school or on the way, or somebody would do it for them, pick them up and have them till they got home, like a, a working mother. Mm.
2: And what 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 decade was was this in that you this were this was the sixties, the, the
1: late uh, mid sixties, um, and it. I started. I did my first year at Swinton Day Training College, um, but in the meantime. Sir Alec Clegg built Scoresby College on the Doncaster Road, main Bounsley Doncaster Road, going into Doncaster. And the second two years of my training course, I did there. Um, And that's where it really fired up. He was bringing in the people he had observed in schools who were better than most and brought them in to train people how to teach his way, which was, in a way, what he was thinking and and, and occasionally saying. We've got the three R sorted. Reading, writing, arithmetic, everybody's doing those with no problems. That goes back, of course, to the earliest education act, working class children being taught literacy and numeracy. But beyond that, he was saying, let's have a look at the the arts now. Let's see, because don't you learn originally through the arts? You listen to your mummy singing a lullaby. You listen to her or your grandparents reading stories to you. It's literature. You draw, paint, you play with plasticine or sculpt, Um, you dance, you sing, there they are, and you pretend to be Jack and Jill, or falling down the hill, or whatever, they are the arts, so if that's how you learn originally, and every child can link into that saying, oh yeah I can remember, then when do you stop? And you don't. That That's the point. You don't. You know now. You, you will have seen a film recently or heard a programme on the radio or seen something on TV or been to the theatre or the ballet and thought, yeah, that's really impacted on me. And now I can link it. And now that... and and so on. It's still a spur. It's still a flash of lightning to tone you into wanting to learn some more again. And I've always believed teacher's job isn't to make you learn, it's to make you want to learn. And if you can do that, then you're a good teacher, and certainly Sir Alec Clegg was that. And of course, if I tell you Alec Clegg's nephew is David Attenborough, you'll realise what I'm saying more clearly than I can explain it. Because you sit and watch a programme there, and at the end of the hour you think, well, I've been really well entertained. You haven't. You've been educated by stealth. (laughs) Because you find you know something now you never dreamed of learning about. You wouldn't have bothered. But he makes it fun. And that's what the Attenborough Clegg thing was about. Richard was making films... I saw his very first film when I was very young Um, and it was about uh, teddy boys and criminality. He was preaching, teaching, learning through, teaching through that and we were learning, no, they're the baddies, we should be on the goodies side. Um, So that family was quite influential and instrumental, particularly in Yorkshire but across the entire country. They were amazing.
0: The late, great Mel Dyke there. And from one Barnsley legend to another, Dickie Bird, and an and interview recorded by Paul Stebbing shortly after the museum opened in 2013, where Dickie spoke about his childhood and growing up in Barnsley.
3: I left school when I was 15. And I, my father, uh, he got me a job in the in the fitting shop at Mount Colliery. OK. Uh, and... Uh, he said, there's one thing he used to say to me, you're not going down the mine. You're going to play a sport for your living. But I went, I went there at 15, and till, nine, till I was 19, and I signed for Yorkshire at 19. And from being 19 to 65 when I retired, it's been cricket for me. But you know the early days were tremendous in this town.
2: Well, actually, I mean, as 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 a youngster, you, you, you talked about playing playing cricket and playing football. Um, anything else you can remember doing? Did you did, were you a Nipsey player? That was popular, wasn't it? <laughs>
3: well, like of course, we we're not going to we are probably going to talk about cricket in a LA later day. Yes, we are. you yeah, come on to that. But uh, but, uh, I, but I, I, when I left school, I went to Bowsley Cricket Club. Yes, that's when I started my career. Yes, and I signed for Barsley at football. Angus Seed was the manager at Barnsley. He signed me straight from school. So that's, that was the start of my sporting career. Okay. But there were days, there were happy days, and I have some wonderful, wonderful memories of this town that I should treasure.
2: What was it like during the, during the war in Barnsley? What can you remember well, it
3: was frightening, of course, because the bomb Sheffield, and that was very, very close to Barnsley. We used to, be, we would be we used to be under the bed. <laughs> we could hear the bombs dropping at Sheffield, and he, he, he flattened Sheffield, and we were just we just missed it actually, Barnsley, and we're not far away from Sheffield. But no, the uh, the early days uh, were, were uh, wonderful, wonderful, great little town, great great
2: place. Mm. I've seen the phrase "Barnsley for bargains" used quite a lot.
3: Yeah, but you see, the market always used to be a tremendous market, yeah. which is coming back. I think now it's coming back to what it used to. That's the plan. That's yeah. the plan. It's coming back to what it was in the olden
2: days. Because people used to come from all over the north, oh, didn't they, to Barnsley? Come all over.
3: Yeah. They're coming from all over. They come from all over. But you know, I, I, I may be going off it a bit yeah. No, you're fine. There's people come to this town to see my statue. People have come from Australia, India, New Zealand, West Indies. They've all come here to see it. Or and it's brought people in, yeah. It's brought people in, I'll tell you. And then they've gone into the market. Then they've gone into the cafes, the little cafes, and that's something to eat. Oh, yeah, they've come from all over.
2: I was there the day you unveiled the key when you were giving
3: your, your speech. I, I, I couldn't, <laughs> my speech, I couldn't, I couldn't get it out. Because it it brought back some some wonderful memories of, of my young days. And a son of the mention, my father. Yeah. Well, I just, that's yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Because we practiced for hours in that little park. Where the statue is is yeah. that little park. Yeah, We practiced it hours in there, when I was a kid, when I was a little kid.
2: So you, you, your father worked at Montbrecht, Mon you yeah. Br- say? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, he was underground, was he? He
3: was a coal phase. Okay. Miner. Yeah, he was at the coal
2: phase. Okay. Did he have any lasting medical uh, effects from working down the mine? Oh, yeah. It killed him in the end. Okay. He retired at 65,
3: come out of the mine, he didn't get any, he didn't get a certificate, so well done, he got yeah, nothing. Just sent on his way. And he died at seventy, which is no age, I suppose, today. Not today. No, so he died at seventy with heart, we and lungs,
2: dust yeah. in the lungs.
3: Yeah. So well, because you knew
2: Mark, Michael Parkinson, didn't oh, you? Are know, you now? Days.
3: Michael and I were brought up together, of course, at from being uh, uh, fifteen, we both played for Barnsley Foot Cricket Club together, and. We've kept our friendship on all these years. We've been, we've been friends. Uh, in fact, he's just been to Barnsley. Just been for. He
2: was a guest editor, wasn't he, for the Chronicle?
3: Yeah, the best guest editor. But he was only here two days, and I spent most of the first day with him. Okay. Uh, and he did a piece. Uh, he did a piece with me for the Barnsley Chronicle. Then he did. He's done a piece for the. Uh, that program at six thirty, BBC. Oh, look, North? Off. No, not no Calendar? Off. No. The one show. Oh, the one show. OK, yes. And then it comes out later, they, they've done a bit then. But uh, no, we've kept our friendship up. We still keep it up. We still kept our friendship up, which okay. is
0: nice. Continuing with the sporting theme, with our next clip, Stephen sports Olympic champion Dorothy Hyman in 2022. was
4: born in Cudworth and lived in blumfontein Street, which was a long row of terraced houses with a toilet out the back and a tin bath, a Friday night's tin bath. Um, yeah, happy childhood, went to school. I wouldn't say, I, I didn't not enjoy it. School were all right, I never had any problems. You know, you get people saying, no, no, I didn't get much out of school. But yeah, school were all right. I can't say I was sad to leave, but I did enjoy in my time there.
2: And he, he, he. Dad,
4: mining was there. Did you kind of remember him? Where did he mine? Do you remember him going off to his shift or? Uh, well, he, well, he mined at various pits, and he did at one time before I was born. When he was just married, he moved to Arworth uh, and worked there in a deep mine. And I know my mum said they had a new council house, which she loved, and she would have stayed there. But my dad wanted to come back to Cudworth, so they came back to Cudworth.
2: Um, and did, did you have like, did you have four, four other siblings?
4: I did. I had. I was the second. I had an older sister, and then I was next, and then John next, then David, and then Susan, the youngest. And there's 15 years between myself and Susan, so she's more like a daughter <laughs> than a, a sister. That's
2: fantastic. And what was Cardiff like back then when you were growing up? Was it was it more rural than it is now? Was it?
4: <laughs> Not a lot, no. No, it wasn't a lot. It was always a busy little town. You could get most things there. Um, yeah, plenty of fish shops. I mean, when I was running, uh, the green grocer said it were his vegetables and the fish shop <laughs> said it were his fish and chips that made me good, but
2: <laughs> so good. So, yeah, Cudriff could was a busy village and, uh, and you know, in your teenage years, that's when you've really got running, isn't it? Your early teens. Yeah, so. well, I
4: started when I was about... 12-13. Uh, I think my dad saw me run when I was, I think I was in the junior school, Pontefract Road Junior School, and he came to watch me run in a local school event. And I, I, I'm not sure, I, I probably didn't win that day, because I think I turned around to look at somebody. But he, he decided then, he thought I could run. Why? A minor? I don't know why. But from then on, he decided that he thought I could run. And um, he started taking me to run round park and uh, doing exercises. Uh, I wasn't a member of Athletic Club then, but it must have been when I was about 13, probably, 13, 14. And he worked with a man called Eddie Fleetwood from Lungwood, and he was Barnsley's second-team coach. And he must have done some running in his days, but he did... Coach, a few athletes at Oakwell um, I've forgotten his first name, somebody Smiley from Grimethorpe, Jean um, Newbold from Sheffield Gloria Goldsbury coached but not when I was with him. I had to go to Ken. then, that was an athletic club and they were going to watch me run but when we got there by the time racing were over it was too late so he says, well bring her to Oakwell on Sunday morning and I did, and Bert Smiley, they called him, and um, he says, Bert, take her around, see what you think, and he did, he had me running outside of him, and and he He says, yes, she's fine. So I joined his little group as a junior, and they used to use me as a hair for older ones, put me in front, and I would determined they weren't going to catch me. (laughs) And I used to train on the, uh, well, the cinder path round, I don't know whether it still is Cinder, but that's that was us track. And, uh, yeah.
2: and how many days a week were you there? Uh,
4: probably went we're, probably went there just Sundays, uh, and then we didn't train like uh, I probably trained twice a week. I weren't a member of a club, but my dad used to take me to the park and have me running and running up street, and then I'd run in little. Um, welfare meetings, like we had the co festival things, and I ran in races locally, and we're doing quite well. But then, uh, and in 3A races, but then after a year, you could run unattached for one year, but the second year, you had to be a member of a club. And I was going to join Bank End, but somebody said to me, dad, don't go there because they're falling out, they're going to disband. So I went to Icutt Men Main at Thurnske. And I used to go twice a week, we didn't have a car, and I I used to, uh, we used to go on the bus, into Barnsley, Barnsley to Thurnske, train and then back again.
0: Thank you to Dorothy for that interview, and for the objects that she has kindly donated to the museum. Our final clip from the Barnsley Sound Archive is someone slightly lesser known, but all the while still influential. Stanley Race was the chairman at Revlon's glassworks in the 1970s, and he was the inventor of the world's first glass bottle bank.
5: I went on television to uh, pointing out the merits of glass. It was impervious. It was this and it was the other, and that, uh, then, of course, the period of the uh, 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 recycling. Yes. And that was another important thing that I did. So I, I did tell it. Me more about. Uh,
1: about
5: that yeah and the development mm. of that well during the fact that whilst i was managing director of course I was i was going to meetings of this glass manufacturers federation because that was where things happened, and uh, we used to have a chairman and he was appointed every for two years and uh, i suppose it was with me being younger i thought didn't think too seriously that i was going to be it. But eventually, uh, I was made president of 1976 and 77, and uh, one of the the things that I was able to do because I had this, uh, I was able to launch this this sales talk and for it, and also I, two years previous to this, we got a, a visit from the environmental people in Brussels. And uh, I met this lady when she came over, and she said that uh, they were very concerned about the throwaway bottle that had been introduced by Schweppes. I don't know whether you remember it, one trip, re- non-return, one trip, quarter litre, your, your gin and tonic was fresh every time you poured it out because of just enough. And it went like a bomb, the, you know, the, we've got a machine making nothing else but that. And of course the, the trouble was that no deposit, no return, the stuff was piling up, broken glass. So she said, "Well, look, you'll have to do something about it." This is "The glass industry, not just me, but I was two years from presidency then, but that's the sort of passed the buck to me to do." And they said that, uh, they, that they'll leave us alone, providing we did something about it. Otherwise, they're going to put a tax on on the bottles. So we didn't want that. So we started thinking. We got our PR people and said right, well, what's the prospect? And they could get some information from the continent that they had these containers uh, for bottles. And then we had an experiment at York where we took a thousand homes in Acon with the local authority. We gave them sacks and told them to separate it and so forth. Uh, three colours worked off fine. The local authority said they would collect it. We would pay the cost. And uh, it worked very well for a while, but not long before the bottles got mixed up. And in the end, we were all getting mixed up. So that wasn't going to be very good, but it was a lesson that we learned. Uh, But where it it did stop thinking, uh, I had to reconcile three things. There was the local authority who had to be involved, obviously and persuade them that there was some money and and then their bottles, some bottles some money. The second was is to get the competitors agreeing that that was uh, the thing for, because I had more opposition with our competitors. Although we're all in one federation, they didn't like the idea of getting foreign glass and upsetting their standard mix of glass. And again, I said, you know, I've mean, been on the practical side, saying, well, if you don't know how to do it, I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> uh, but that was too much for their pride. They, they really did, they didn't want it really. And the other thing was to get the public mindful of, of what was happening. So we worked then closely with the South Yorkshire because at that time they were, a, we were a county. If you remember, do you remember 74, 84?
1: I, I, know I know about the, it. yeah, it was
5: just, so they had the town hall was opposite the Civic Hall. Mm-hmm. And, and so eventually we persuaded them that it was a good idea and we would provide the receptacle, these bottle bags, and that we would pay them money for it. Look what we could do with some money and stuff. Oh no, we don't want to be bothered about that. The Glass will be all over the place. Oh no, we don't want that. No, 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 something else, something else to do. Oh, we'll find a way. <laughs> they weren't very enthusiastic about this way. Cull it, as we call it. So eventually we kept w- working on them, and uh, they, were, they were quite good in the end with, with South Yorkshire because they recognised what, what we were saying. Pe- penny was dropping and th- there would have to be something done about it. So, arising out of that, and being at Returns and being able to deal with broken glass and cull it and separate it and use it, uh, was a, a big advantage. So, eventually we decided to have a launch day, and that was when nationally we, uh, we launched the first bottle bank and I put the first bottle in and the, the similar thing happened in Oxford later and that day but we were the first. So that was a feather in the cap of uh, South Yorkshire because they had the television cameras there. The it, was a tele- it was marvellous for us because it was Rettford and it was me, local lad, and etc. And it was right from the Glass Manufacturers Federation. So we were on, we were on site, and we we're on on parade, if you like. It grew from that, but that was when it started.
0: There you go, Stan Race, the inventor of the glass bottle bank, back in 1977. That's just about it for this series of the podcast. But we'll we'll be back, as I mentioned earlier, just before Christmas, in time for a Christmas pub quiz. Thanks for listening. See you later. And that's the end
2: of that chapter.